This is totally unannounced. And our speaker is with us this morning. Not for plan, but I'm glad it worked out. Thank God. Mr. Grant are with us this morning. There are no strangers here. And uh, before he comes, Grant, I want you to come up here for a few minutes, will you? Praise God. And I didn't ask you to preach. Just, uh, just greet these folks for a few minutes, please. God bless you. It's so good to be with you this morning and you're building with your beautiful pews. Thanks for hearing and talking to us about it. We're so, we're thankful for you. And I'm so thankful that for God this morning that he will never leave us alone. And no matter where we go or what we're doing, he's always there. And I'm so thankful for him this morning and I love him with all my heart. I'd like to ask you to stand again. I know you've been standing a little bit. I have a privilege this morning to bring to this pulpit a very, very dear friend of mine. I live in closer to this brother than any man that I've ever known in my lifetime. I appreciate that. He's a man of wisdom, integrity, and the love of God. After the fine church in Madison, we have just begun a few short time ago, two or three weeks ago, to build a new building. And we thank the Lord for that. The grant is also our district superintendent, District of Wisconsin. That's a tremendous responsibility. He is a tremendous leader well-respected not only in our own district but throughout the fellowship of the United Pentecostal Church. And we're just delighted to have him here this morning. Praise God. Praise God. Now, I had asked him previously to come. He kind of hinted around that he could come this morning. And I said, well, that would be great, but we'd love to have you, you know, for our whole day on Sunday. He said, well, I can't do that right now. And I said, well, uh, I'd rather you not come just for one service. I'd rather wait a little bit and have you for both Sunday services. He said, well, okay, we'll do that. And that's kind of the way we left it. But uh, <clears throat> I began to work on him last night. Since you're already over this way... Uh, we don't want to cancel the all day in a month or so, but uh, why don't you just go ahead and stay over and preach for us this morning and uh, get a double blessing from the Lord. God will bless you for blessing us. So uh, he listened to wisdom, and <laughs> and I'm so glad he's here this morning. We'll, we'll have the all-day treat just a little bit later on, maybe January, February. He's a very busy man, but uh, we'll just kind of warm up to it this morning. Brother Grant, it's so good to have you here. How many minutes are here? Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. God is good. Praise God. Isn't the Lord good? Praise God, and thank you, Brother Aaron, so very much. While you're standing, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Proverbs, the third chapter. It is a real privilege to be here. I sneaked over here yesterday and looked at the pews, but Aaron was not here. But I came in, and Brother Webb was here, and several other men, and they showed me the pews, and they are lovely. I'll tell you they are. There's something about a nice pew. You look better when you sit on a nice pew, don't you think? <clears throat> More than that, you feel better. <laughs> it gives the preacher a little bit of an edge, though. He can preach longer without you complaining. <clears throat> I 
I can preach uh, in five minutes, or I can preach at 55 minutes. Or I got a call from the District of Illinois about a year ago, and they asked me if I was coming to Chicago. They're going to have a lock-in. They're going to preach all night long. So I went to Chicago, and uh, I don't know what kind of a record I set, but we preached for a long time. But that was by special request. But Aaron said, you're usually out of service here by 12. 12.15, so I've got 12 minutes. But he did say it's all right, but I go a little longer. Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Isn't that a beautiful passage of Scripture? There are similar passages throughout the book of Psalms and the book of Psalms. I want to preach this morning on leaning on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Praise God. It disturbs me when I see people give their heart to the Lord, and just in a matter of weeks, they begin to fall away. Now, that bothers me. That's not an intentional thing. The Bible says in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, that the creature is made subject to vanity. That is a very important thing that you understand, that you are made subject to vanity. So God can begin to bless you, and you get your mind on his blessing rather than on the God that gave the blessing, because we are made subject to them. God bless you. You may be seated. Your building is almost complete now. You got your new pews. The outside looks good. Praise God. The only thing that is lacking is that you still have some vacant shoes that are not good. Enough. But that's coming. I feel it. It's just like everybody here has a special talent. You know, I come in here and somebody's up leading song service and somebody else takes it and leads song service and somebody else does and somebody comes and sings and somebody else sings and then all of a sudden all of you get up and sing. It's a great thing to be able to come to a church where everybody has a special talent. And I come along, I don't know how to do anything. But uh, I do love God, and we trust that we can leave something with you that will be very important. Verse 7 of Proverbs 3, Be not wise of thine own eyes, Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now sometimes when I come in the house of the Lord, I feel like rolling up my sleeves and chasing devils. And other times I feel like comforting people. Other times I just feel like talking. And that's the mood I'm in this morning. I'd like to just address the subject of leaning on the Lord from a very practical point of view, something that I feel is very, very important. As I said before, it bothers me when I see people that reach the point in which they feel like they don't need to pray. Now, this church has been blessed immensely. Uh, God has really blessed you. You know, you have come from the storefront to the office complex to, to a nice, beautiful building in one of the better locations in the city of Milwaukee. God has really blessed you. And I feel a fervency of the Holy Ghost among you. And that's so very, very important. But churches lose that fervency 
not all together by churches lose that lose that fervency by the blessings of God resting upon one individual at a time and that individual begins to take for granted the blessings of the Lord the halt and the maimed the weak the deaf uh, the dumb the blind followed Jesus and he healed them and in their midst he miraculously fed them from a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And Jesus, in turn, said later that the only reason why you should continue to follow me is not because of your heart of thanksgiving for what I have done, but because of the food that I gave to you and you're looking for another good meal. And that's the reason why you follow me. God always gives opportunity to every man. He always gives opportunity to turn back. And there are always things that God puts in your path to bless you, but those blessings can become curses to you. And this is what I want to talk about. Now, the word trust, when it says trust in the Lord, the word trust means to put your faith in or your hope in or believe in or continue to abide in. Now, if you notice John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him. Now, the word believeth in the Old English means a continual abiding in. Now, we could use in our modern-day vernacular, we could use the word believe, and some of the modern translations uses the word believe, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Now, in our present-day English, there is not any difference in the word believeth and the word believes. But it was translated in 1611 in the revised King James Version that most of you have, it's translated believeth because it's actually taken from a Greek word that means to trust or to obey. So when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever obeys or trusts in God. And the word trust means a continuation of leaning on. are a continuation of obeying, putting yourself under the submission of an individual. For this reason, you'll find that same word translated throughout the Bible, and in most cases, it's translated trust or obey. Acts 5, 9, the Lord gave the Holy Ghost to them that obey him, the same word that's taken from John 3.16. And also, it's found in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse 9, where the Lord gave the Holy Ghost to them that trust him or obey him. The very same word that you find in John 3.16. Now, what I'd like for you to do is take your Bibles, and I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, the 13th chapter. Now, in my study of the Bible, I have come to the conclusion that Matthew 13 is prophecy that Jesus gave, he gave seven parables in Matthew 13, and these seven parables correlate with the seven churches of Asia, which also parallel church history, or it's a prophecy of church history. The first parable that he gave, however, and this is also true in the, the letters of uh, Revelation 2 and 3, it's true in much prophecy that you can take a particular aspect of the prophecy that might be referring to something else, and yet it is made applicable to your particular situation. It has a dual meaning or a dual purpose. And, and I think that, that Matthew 13, the first parable, is certainly applicable to any individual who is desiring to walk with God and please God. And also it describes conditions 
that people get in to in, in which they cannot serve God and will not serve God. So we want to go through some of these. The Bible speaks in the same day when Jesus out of the house and he sat by the seaside and a great multitude were gathered together unto him and he went into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore and he spake many things unto them in parables saying behold a sower went forth to sow now we commonly call this the parable of the sower but if you read the total parable the emphasis is not placed upon who did the sowing we know that god did or this is the word of the lord that comes to an individual but the emphasis is placed upon the soil, and the soil is the heart, or the condition of a man's heart. When he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Now, the wayside soil is hard soil. There are certain times in which the preacher can preach to you, or will preach to you, and because of some circumstance that you've been involved in, you cannot shed tears. You cannot cry. And it seems like his preaching is just for somebody else. Now, you've, you've seen people that they just, you know, they get involved in certain circumstances and they let those circumstances do a number on them, so to speak. They allow it. You see, all of life is a time of testing. And you've got to understand that, that there are some things in life that are very hard and they're very difficult for you to understand. Paul speaks of that. Now, we know that God will not put anything upon us that we're not able to bear. And what you need to understand about trials is that trials come to everybody. When you live for God... You will be tried, or when you don't live for God, you'll be tried. It's just that while we are living for God, that he promised never to leave us nor forsake us. In other words, the, the potential is there where we can hold our composure, believe in God and trust in God, and not fly off in all directions. But trials come. Man's born a woman a few days and full of trouble. That said of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was to make a way straight to the Lord. And so when John came upon the scene, now John was a different type of individual altogether. John was a different breed of priest. He could have been a priest. But he chose a particular path preordained by God. And you see, he was to exalt the low places, suppress the high places, and make the path straight. Now, he lived a very rugged life. By rugged life, I'm not talking about lifestyle. I'm talking about a lifestyle of, of strict, stout resistance from people. His whole life seemed to be a trial. In fact, it was John who had his head cut off. He was beheaded for the cause of the Lord. Now, you've got to understand that the reason that, that, that John did what he did, you see, every time that he preached something that people didn't like, and every time he went through some trial that he didn't particularly like, he, uh, he had an acute understanding that he was making it easier for somebody else. And, and somehow, in, in, in our life, if we can, if we can understand that, that every hardship we have, that if we pass the test, we're just pointing somebody to the Lord, toward the Lord. You see, you may be going through a very, very difficult and hard, hard, hard trial. But you're making it easier for somebody else. And all of life is predicated upon progress and growth. Brother Aaron does not want his children to have it as difficult as he had it when he grew up. And I'm sure the prayer of his father was, God, make it easier and better for my son. And when we read of the days of the pioneers who, who fought their way to the Midwest and then later on out to the West, my, if we, had to, if we had to cope with some of those things today. But you see, all of life is growth and progress. And John understood that every time he put the blade of his dozer ministry down and pushed down a hill, he was making a smooth path for somebody else. 
and the most selfish attitude that a Christian could ever fall into is while you're pushing that big mound of dirt out of the way for you to back up and say, well, I'm not going to do this. I won't do it for myself nor for anybody else. So I'm not going to go through all these hardships, okay? You leave the ground untouched, and your own heart becomes wayside material. Hardened. Hardened. Nobody can touch you. Nobody can do anything to you. And what a very drastic situation. Some fell upon stony places. Now, the stony place, uh, to me, a heart that... It would be a stony heart. That would be a heart that had good soft spots but had some some, some sensitive spots also, some hardened areas. So the preacher is preaching. He's preaching about, uh, uh, let's say he's preaching about brotherly love, and, and, and you've got somebody in the church that you have some grudge against. So you've got a hard spot there. So, you know, you now preachers are very well aware of this. Now, this you know, I could be up preaching. Oh, I can just preach, preach, preach. Now, I have some people in our church that they just they, they get behind me. Amen, amen, amen. Man, they're really behind me. And all of a sudden, just be nasty. I'll throw out something that I know good and well they can't say amen to. Just to be nasty, you know. And all of a sudden, I throw something out and their lips are sealed. And their eyes get real big. And they sit there. And now everybody's wondering why they're not saying amen. Uh-oh, you reach the stony spot. You reach that hard spot. I'm preaching to you now. See, you reach that hard spot in which you cannot say amen. Because you have a non-forgiving spirit. Because you're carrying a grudge. But if I'm preaching on tithing and prosperity and everything, amen, 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 and all of a sudden I hit the, ugh, I hit that rock. I fall down. Now when the word of the Lord falls upon that man's heart, what's going to happen? It begins to grow, but the hard places become hindering factors to God's word. See, God's Word is so designed to captivate you, to totally uh, monopolize and control you. But there are little spots in which it can't do that. And so the roots are all forced in one area. You know what happens to a, to a plant that's in a pot that's too small? It becomes root-bound. And when it becomes root-bound, it grows real good for a while, but then all of a sudden, it starts to die. Now, you can, you can take that plant out of that pot, and you can take your hands, and it looks like you're going to tear up those roots, but just, just loosen them up real good and put new soil in a bigger pot and put it down in there, and it just grows and flourishes and everything's nice. And that's the way it is with us. When we get roots bound, we just pull all the roots out. And we let the word of the Lord dig around and stir. And, and all of a sudden, the, the soil, it becomes good in our heart. And God begins to grow and grow and grow in us. Now, the third one is the one that I want to talk about more than any. And some fell among the thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked them. Now, we know, <clears throat> we know that... Uh, when we read the Word of the Lord, it is good for us to personalize the Word of the Lord. See, some people never personalize it. They, they personalize it, but they do it for other people, not for themselves. See, like, the, like the one man that every time the preacher preached, he was always saying, Boy, you gave it to him tonight, Pastor. And the pastor just thought, Now, how in the world am I going to get this man to understand that I'm preaching to him too? And everything he would say, he picked out a few little things to throw in that he knew nobody was guilty of, but this man and but this man had still come out and say, You sure gave it to him tonight. And one night there was a blinding snowstorm and nobody made it to church but the pastor and this one man. 
and this pastor thought, now this is a good time for me to wake him up, and he preached his heart out to that man, and that man just said, amen, amen, amen. He wasn't moved at all, and when the pastor concluded the service, went down and shook his hand, he said, I'll tell you one thing, if they'd have been here tonight, they'd have got it again. <laughs> hey, some, some people... <laughs> Some people never personalize the word of the Lord. It's always for somebody else. And you know, when I preach and when, when Pastor Aaron preaches or anybody preaches, you need to carefully evaluate yourself in light of the Scripture. Is, am I becoming hard-hearted? Am I refusing to go through some trials? Am I failing the test? Am I not making it easier for somebody else? Am I wayside material? Now let me just let me just refer to something here that'll that'll really help you. In Hebrews the tenth chapter, the Bible says that if we sin willfully, after we have come to a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now I know that a lot of people say, Well, that's talking about premeditated sin. If you sit down and you premeditate a sin and you go ahead and do it, then there's no way God will forgive you. Well, I don't think anybody'd be saved. I don't think they're saying that. Because I think if that's what it's saying, nobody would be saved. But the context of the Scripture is dealing with willful sin. That simply means if you're doing anything that you shouldn't do, and you continue to do it. Now, you can repent about everything under the burning sun except that one thing. But you hold on to that one thing. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was not designed to be powerful enough to take away a sin that you don't repent of. It's a willful sin, and you go ahead and do it. Now, sometimes you fall into weaknesses, and you weep, and you cry, and you say, God, make me good soil. I don't want to be hard-hearted. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will come and take that sin away. But you, you can be repenting over a thousand things, but that one little thing you hold on to, and you say, God... I'd like to give this up, but I just don't think it is that important for me to give up. And Paul is saying the blood of the Lord was not designed to take away willful sin. And there's no sacrifice that God ever had that will take it away because it wasn't designed for that. So we need to, when we read these things, we need to look at them and say, Now, Lord, is this me? Am I wayside material? What about, what about the, the stony places? Is, is, that, is that the condition of my heart? Is that the way I am? Lord, is this me? Am I wayside material? What about, what about the, the stony places? Is, is, that, is that the condition of my heart? Is that the way I am? Then what about this, this thorn business? In the 22nd chapter, And he also that receiveth seed, 22nd verse, pardon me, and he also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. Now, this is where most people fit in, honestly. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. I have seen so many people that were so fruitful, but after a while they were not fruitful. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the cares of this world. Now, do you know what the word or the phrase the cares of this world actually is referring to? It's not talking about things that burden you down. Usually when we talk about the cares of this world, we usually refer to things that burden you down. Not true. The cares of this world, it simply means that you have been overtaken by the things that you really love and care for. That's what it's talking about. Now, for an example, all right, God saves you, and he blesses you abundantly. And he blesses you through constant Christian living. Now, nobody in God will ever be successful by one particular thing they do. Because success in God is predicated upon continual occurrences. See, the woman that came to the unjust judge, she came every day, and she pled, Deliver me from mine adversary. And so as a result, you'll find that this man, being unjust, forgave her because, I say forgave her, he delivered her, because her continual coming wearied him. Now, the analogy of this 
was that if this man being unjust, if he will do this, how much more shall your heavenly Father deliver you from your adversary? So the context of the scriptures talking about deliverance from the adversary. When Jesus prayed, this is how he prayed, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, now we interpret that sometimes to mean if you want something for God, just bug the daylights out of him. After a while you get tired of hearing you say, okay, here it is. No, that's not what it's saying. That's not the principle by which God wants to operate. God wants you to believe him and accept his blessing. See, God by nature is a God that likes to do good things for people. Well, what I get out of this is that, that if you want to be delivered from your adversary, you know how you're delivered from your adversary? Through prayer. And so you do certain things every day. Every day you pray. Every day you seek God. Every day you lean on the Lord. Every day you go back to Him. Every day, every day, every day. Let's say it together. Every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. Now, I may fail God tomorrow, but I can truthfully say I received the Holy Ghost April 15, 1961, and I have never retired to my bed without kneeling on my bedside and asking God to forgive me and deliver me from temptation and clear my heart out. Every day. Every day, every day. Brother Dan Thompson stood behind this pulpit this morning and said, We all need the Lord. The song, People Need the Lord. Now, here is the problem. Because the creature is made subject to vanity, God, when he, we give our heart to him, we enter into a relationship with him in which if we on a constant Bases do certain things, God begins to bless us. That's what we read in the book of Proverbs. But when his blessings come, we get our eyes on the blessings more than we do the God of the blessings. Now, balance is a very difficult thing for Christians to obtain. It's very difficult for anybody to obtain. We usually ricochet from one extreme to the other. For an example, most of God's people, they either don't care one thing about material things or they care too much. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? Now, I personally believe that if a man pays his tithes and his offerings and he's a charitable individual and he prays, God's going to bless him. Now, you may go through some situation in which you will be tried, I mean tried severely. You may lose practically everything you have. But if you continue to live for God, the latter will be greater than the former. That's what the book of Job teaches us. And so God tells us that he will bless us. He is a God that likes to do good things for us. So let's say all of a sudden a man prays through to the Holy Ghost and he's never had a new pair of shoes in his life and the pair of shoes that he has on has great big holes in the sole and all of a sudden... God blesses the man with a new pair of shoes. Now, what emphasis should he place on that new pair of shoes? Now, he cares for those shoes. That's a care of life. But the problem is, the care of life, the things that he loves and cares for, should not overtake him. Now, should he shine his shoes regularly? Yes. How do you know, Brother Grant? Because, you see, he is a good steward. And one of the signs of the last days that men shall be unthankful. If God gives you a new pair of shoes and you never care for those shoes, you never shine those shoes, you are making a drastic mistake because you are proving that you are not thankful for the things that God has given to you. And the things that you don't maintain and keep denotes your unthankful and ungratifying spirit. You become ungrateful. If God blesses you with a new car, but you never have it washed and the oil changed and the tires balanced are such, you are an unthankful servant. Now, that's just the way it is. But you see, the thorny person 
was the person who was overtaken by the cares. He got a new house. He got children. He got a new wardrobe. He got new clothes. Uh, he got a new car. He got a new job. He got everything. Did he love those and care for those? He should because they came as a result of the blessings of the Lord. But he was overtaken by those things. Now, I know that working out your own salvation is one of the most difficult things, and Paul speaks to that. If you turn to the book of Philippians, in which he also talks about this, he talks about something else, and we, I have read this scripture here in this church and elaborated on this before. But I think it would be good for us in your hearing just to call your attention to one little thing here. Philippians, the third chapter. All right? <clears throat> Philippians, the third chapter, <clears throat> verse 17. Now, this book of Philippians is a, is a very powerful book. This is the book that tells us that, that we should have the mind of Christ. The same mind that was in Christ should also be in us. Brethren, be followers together, verse 17 of chapter 3, of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, you can become diametrically opposed to the thing that you endorse. That's what he's saying. In other words, God saved you, and you became a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Jesus called his disciples friends. But you can become an enemy, not a friend to God. Now, here's how you can become an enemy. Verse 18, or verse 19, whose end is destruction. Now, if you're an enemy of the cross, the final analysis is destruction. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things. Now, the, the third part of this is the one I want to talk to you about in relationship to this scripture over here, the cares of this world. How do you know that you're overemphasizing the blessings of the Lord? Now, you should care for those things, but you notice what Paul says, they mind earthly things. Now, that simply means they keep their mind on the blessings all the time. They mind earthly things. In other words, that's on their mind all the time. So Saturday afternoon, when God speaks to them, now, they got the money. They could run their car over the car wash, but they'd rather get out and tinker around on that car and shine that car and let the world go to hell. They'd rather paint on their place and fix their place up, and they should do that, but we're talking about spending too much time, overemphasizing. It's all right to own cars, but the Bible is saying, don't let that car own you. In other words, the things that should be servants to you, don't you put yourself in bondage to those things. That car has four wheels that should take you throughout the city to witness and testify to a lost world. Drive your car. Don't let your car drive you. Own your car. Don't let that car own you. Should you care for that car? Yes, you should care for that car because the attitude of a poor servant is that he has a non-thankful spirit. You should make that car look as nice and last as long as it possibly can because it came out of God. But after a while, you got your mind always on your car. you got your mind always on your looks. So the guy who has the, the slick-worn pants and the holes in his shoes, he dances in the spirit, but after a while, he's got his new suit on and his new shoes on, and he can't afford to run the aisles anymore. He can't afford to dance in the spirit anymore. He can't afford to get his pants wrinkled anymore. He's got his mind on himself. He's stuck on himself. He's bogged down with the cares of this world. Should he care for his clothes? Sure. Should he care for his suit, his shoes? He absolutely is. But he's bogged down now with the cares of this world. And what about the deceitfulness of riches? Wow, what a powerful, powerful thing here. If you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> the fifth chapter, verse 10, the Bible says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. 
nor he that loveth abundance with increase, this also is vanity. Now let me explain something about the book of Ecclesiastes. <coughs> I think I've gone over my time already. I'm going to have to stop here real soon. But uh, <clears throat> let me just let me explain something about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's so important. You see, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, he has so many regrets. It's a sad book. It really is. His bed. Through the eye, through the ear, through the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eye and the pride of life, John says in his first epistle. So all the rivers run in the sea, yet the sea is never full. Let me see something real smutty and I'll feel real good. No, you won't either. Let me hear something real crummy and I'll feel real good. No, you won't either. So you won't. And he said the sea is never full. Because you see, sin was never designed to be fulfilling. Now you get in danger when you read between the lines of the scripture sometimes, but sometimes you need to let the Holy Ghost talk to you. Now, Solomon is saying there are some things that are always sinful. Those things are vanity. The word vanity actually comes from the word vain, and vain comes from a term. Well, let me explain it like this. You see the child blowing soap bubbles, and they look so beautiful, and the child runs and reaches out, and the very moment he touches it, what happens? It bursts. It's not there. Now, that's the connotation that comes with vanity. The moment you... It, it's always outside of your grasp the moment that you reach for it and the moment that you, your hope is built up and the moment that you think you'll be satisfied, it's gone. Soap bubbles. It dissipates. It leaves. Where did it go? I don't know. Did it fall to the ground? I don't know. It's always out of your reach. Now, Solomon also talks about things in the book of Ecclesiastes that are not sinful but necessary life. Now, he says those things are vanity also. He talks about houses. He talks about lands. You know, God so designed us. We, do, we don't just go out with our, with our uh, uh, fur that he put all over our body like a badger and, and dig a hole someplace in the ground. No, he didn't make us that way. We need houses. See, even in eternity, he's going to have a house for us. See? We, we need houses. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, but, but see, Solomon says, now those things are vanity also. Now, he concludes by saying that the whole duty of man is to love God and keep his commandments. Now, what I get out of this is, is this. When I read between the lines, okay? The, the big problem with most people is this. They expect something out of something that it was not designed to give. And that's, that's the reason why you, you, you're so heartbroken. So, in other words, you've seen a man that had the best job that's possible. He seemed to be happy with his job. He's got the best home that he could possibly live in. He seemed to be happy with his home. He's got the best car he could drive. He seemed to be happy with that. He's got a good marriage, the best wife he could possibly find, and he seems to be happy with her, but he's not a happy man. Now, and what's missing in his life? It's Jesus. And do you know the reason why that most jobs go bad? Because people expect something out of that job. That job was not designed to give to them. They expect the sum total of their tranquility and peace and happiness to come out of that job. And that job was never designed to give you everything you need as far as happiness is concerned. And so a marriage goes south. The best husband you could have, the best possible wife, the best, <coughs> the best possible couple. You hear all of a sudden, Hollywood's ideal marriage goes south. What happened to that marriage? You see, it appears that these people were expecting something out of marriage that marriage was never designed to give. I believe I can truthfully say this, and I say this honestly. I would say this privately publicly in front of my wife or when she was not present. I don't know how I could possibly have a better wife or a better man. But I will tell you this, and listen very carefully. See, my marriage with my wife, even though it be ideal, 
this marriage and this marriage alone was never designed to give me everything in a relationship that I need as far as relationships are concerned. I need other friends, and more specifically, I need a relationship with God. And so, to get the best out of life is that you never expect from it what it was not designed to give. And for this reason, then, Paul could be in a prison cell and still say, in all things, give thanksgiving. How can you be happy in a prison cell, Paul? Because, you see, prison cells were not designed to bring happiness. You see, Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. The peace that God gives to you is not designed to come from any external thing. We're talking about leaning on Jesus. We're talking about depending on God. We're talking about getting a hold of God and not letting the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches throw a curve on us and strike us out. Praise God. So I get in the new car that God's given me, but I understand this car was never designed to give me any more than what General Motors put into it. General Motors gives me a warranty, and then the thing goes out two days after the warranty expires. And I go back and say, hey, that doesn't sound fair to me. The thing broke two days after the warranty expired. And so the representative comes and meets me and he said, Mr. Grant, we only designed this car to last so long. Could it be that I'm expecting more out of that 98 Oldsmobile than what General Motors designed it to be? And so I'm disappointed. And I go home and I cry. And I say, now it's $900 for a new transmission. What in the world am I going to do? My, these cars! I don't know what... Oh, wait a minute. It's never designed to do what I'm expecting it to do. And so I pay $60,000 for a remodeling job on my house, and 10 years later I go out and look at it in the paint field and everything else, and I say, dear me, that contractor must have used bad paint. So I contact him, and he said, well... You know, the warrant is out on this a long time ago. If you want to contact DuPont and see what they can do about it. So I call them and they say, 10 years? Well, sir, this paint was not designed to be eternal. And I find myself rocking and reeling because I'm expecting too much from something that wasn't designed to give it to me. So a man goes and buys a boat and a motor and he gets his, his uh, motor home and he gets all geared up for a great big vacation. And then he takes out up to Canada and rains every day and spoils his life. He's spoiled now for one whole year. Vacation ruined. But sir, you expected too much out of your boat and motor. You expected too much out of your vacation. If you want to get the best out of life, don't ever expect out of it something that it was not designed to give you want to get the best out of your marriage, don't expect too much out of that marriage. You want to get the best out of your family, don't expect too much out of your family. Maybe you're expecting something it's not designed to give. The deceitfulness of riches. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, and he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. First Timothy. Well, I got to stop here. I've got to stop. All right, First Timothy, <coughs> First Timothy, the sixth chapter, verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. How can you be content? The only way you can be content in a prison is you don't expect anything out of those guards that they're not there to do. They're not there, my friend, to be hospitable. They're there to take care of those who are not so hospitable. 
Don't design or don't desire something out of that prison that's not designed to give to you. It's not designed as a place of comfort. It's designed as a place of punishment. That's why it's called a penal institution. It's designed for punishment and correction and pain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. If you don't have anything but a $200 wreck looking for a place to happen, and that's what God gave you as far as transportation is concerned, be happy with it. And when it breaks down, the muffler falls off and everything, just say, thank God. I, can't, I shouldn't be expected too much out of it. <clears throat> and you can be content. But you can jump out and slam the door and kick it in, bend it and everything else, and become unthankful. Well, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation. Let's talk about people who love silver and such. You know there's a difference between riches and wealth? Riches is what goes into your wallet. Wealth is what goes into your heart. Wealth is the sum total of what you are and what you have. So your wallet can be empty and you can be a wealthy person. While we brought nothing in this world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, now the key to the interpretation of this is they coveted after. They got their mind on the blessings. They got their mind on the blessings. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How do I have this good ground then, Brother Grant? You have this good ground by continually leaning upon the Lord and continually allowing the Holy Spirit to take out the stony spots, to take out the thorns. Now, being at the subject, or the, the creatures made subject to vanity, all of us are constantly going to God, constantly leaning upon Him, constantly crying out for His mercy and for His grace. Now, in 1 John, and we're closing now, in 1 John, the fourth chapter, First John, the fourth chapter, verse 4. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them. Now, what do you mean overcome? <clears throat> you know what the word overcome actually means? Now, the word over is found in there. It would be improper for me to say to Melanie, Melanie, come out the door. No, it's go out the door. Now, the only way that I can direct her through that door and use the word come is for her to be on the other side when I am calling her to myself. So I say, Melanie, come out the door. No. Come through the door. It's when she is coming toward me. We say, go home. But if we're here at church and we call him, we say, come to church. 
and overcome simply means that there is a beckoning call from our master that says, climb over. Come over. Don't get bogged down in the cares of life. Find a way to climb over them. You're God, little children, because you have overcome them. In John, how can we overcome? The Bible says in the book of John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, the reason how, why we can overcome is because that resident in our heart is the one who made this statement. These things I have spoken to you that ye, that in me ye might have peace. John 16, 33. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We're talking about leaning on Jesus. We're talking about following the beckoning call of a master that says, come up. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's give our hero a hand clap. Oh, shakamarandalabahatai. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Let's stand to our feet and applaud him. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Oh, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our trust, our faith, our confidence, our leading, our depending. For somebody of a condemn. Oh God. <laughs> Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Reading now my last passage of scripture from the book of Revelation, the twenty-first chapter. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down from where passed away. There was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them. He shall be his, they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And I will give him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. He that overcometh. You want riches? Get your eyes on heaven. There never has been a place where streets are paved with gold. Don't get your eyes on the world. Don't get bogged down by the cares. Don't mind earthly things. Don't let riches deceive you. Lean on Jesus, Brother Aaron. I'm learning.